0: Welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowski. Joining me today, as always, is the man who played Dr. Perkins in James Keach's 2006 film Blind Dating. Stephen <laughs> Tobolowski, thanks for joining me today, as always.
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, it's so great to be here. You know, that is blind dating that has to be the subject for another story <laughs> because being in utah with chris pine and james keach and jane seymour was hilarious but there there are too many too many stories so you have inspired me and that'll be coming down the line that is too funny Indeed. Oh, well, chris gosh. pine
0: who of course ended up playing uh, captain kirk in the newest star trek film
1: absolutely
0: and and you know the
1: great thing about chris pine uh, is and, and I think I mentioned it on uh, Slash Film, is one of the great things about Chris Pine is in, in great Shakespearean tragedies, they would always have one character like uh, Edgar in King Lear. Who traveled through all the stages of man. He, he, he would be a lord. He would be a peasant. And you have these characters that repeat over and over again in Shakespearean literature that experience the gamut of mankind. And that is Chris Pine. Because I, I remember Chris when he was like a gopher. On TV sets, getting on TV shows, getting coffee for people, and he worked on the crew. He worked as an extra. He worked as a stand-in. He played small parts. He is uh, kind, giving, wise, talented, and he's got the looks. <laughs> you know, he's <laughs> got the great looks that make him so perfect for Captain Kirk. So uh, uh, it could not happen to a nicer guy. Is my way of saying it.
0: Speaking of King Lear, Stephen. Uh, I think you were telling me before the show that you teach an acting class. Is that correct?
1: Uh, David, that's way too grand. Uh, I don't actually teach acting. I teach improvisation. And, and I've, had, I've taught this class now for, I guess, about four or five years. And I've had the most unusual assortment of people in there. I've had cops. I've had uh, construction workers. I've had people with their own TV shows, people on Broadway. I've had gardeners. You know, and I have no idea why gardeners would need improvisation. Uh, I remember one of the cops mentioned, uh, I I asked people when they had used improvisation in their business. And the cop said that he was on an airplane with a Colombian drug lord who had a gun to his head. And he had to improvise to stay alive and kill the son of a bitch. Uh, (laughs) We were all very quiet in class. After that revelation, but it, it inspired me somewhat for, for this week's stories because no matter how I teach these classes and when I teach these classes, these people, kids and grown ups, all have the same look of terror in their face when they start thinking about show business and, and how do you start show business? How do you get into show business? And it made me think very much of um, my beginnings, my career. And it was the subject of of this week's story. I thought back and I remembered, wow, I came out to Los Angeles in the year of the bicentennial. That's 1976. It was the year of the tall ships, for those of you still alive and old enough to remember. At the time, I had a broken toe about two months earlier and was wearing what they call a moon boot on my right foot. (laughs) And the moon boot was a good news, bad news situation It was bad news because I was not fully functional But the good news was I learned to drive with my left foot Because I was not fully functional My mother decided to help me make the long drive to LA Which was also a good news, bad news scenario Now the car was as full as a card could be It was like something from the Guinness Book of Records The trunk was packed, the back seat was stacked to the roof, no using the rearview mirror. Uh, The side seat was full, and even the driver had to sit with a clothes basket in their lap and a stack of magazines under his or her chin. My mom and I developed a buddy system when we got to filling stations. Whoever was in the passenger seat would have to get out, run around the car, open the driver's door, and unload the baskets and magazines (laughs) so the driver could get out. Stretch their legs And then whoever was driving again Would have to get back in the car Be loaded up with baskets and magazines Before we took off again After about four days We reached Hollywood And we found an apartment building That had a vacancy And my mom thought it looked clean Primarily because it was painted white my room had a Murphy bed And those were those old-fashioned beds That kind of came out of the wall And I liked this thing Because during the day I had a big living room And during the night I had a big bedroom Mom cleaned up the kitchen and the bathroom And I put my 12-inch black and white set on a box Plugged it in There was the evening news And voila, I had a home Mom and I went to the grocery store And I bought provisions Cereal, milk, bologna, bread, mustard, pickles you had beer, and you got the four basic food groups. Mom got a plane ticket the next day to go back to Dallas, and I remember she hugged me and looked at me with love and terror, and she issued her parting words, Stephen, whatever you do, don't go into porno. Off she went, and I was on my own in the City of Angels. Now, I'm not saying I was naive, but here I was living in an area that we now call West Hollywood, Every morning, I had breakfast at a place called the French Market that only had men as customers. Many of these men wore leather pants, leather vests, cowboy outfits. One morning, a man asked if he could sit with me, and I thought maybe there was just a shortage of tables. When I continued eating and reading my morning newspaper, the man stormed off. I had no idea why. And then the waitress came up to me and asked me what we did during the day. And I asked, Who is we? And she said, you guys. And I said, which guys? And she said, gay guys. What do you gay guys do during the day? Oh, my gosh. All of the clues I had missed suddenly came together like the end of a Hitchcock movie. The muscle shirts, the torn jeans with the exposed butt cheek, the leather chaps. These were gay guys and not cowboys. I had been lulled into a false sense of security by my Texas upbringing. As I looked at it, there was nothing normal about California The weatherman on TV mentioned that we were moving into earthquake season Earthquake season, back home we called it September Then came the fires, which from a distance on the beach at night were kind of lovely in an Armageddon sort of way Then came the floods now, I had some friends who had also moved down from Dallas Who lived out in the country outside of L.A., Topanga Canyon And they lived in a house where the 60s rock band, The Canned Heat, used to live It was very cool And then these unbelievable rainstorms hit the area And their house, that had been spared by the fires, was now threatened by a flood And they called me up to see if I could lend a hand in saving what was left With all the rain The normally tiny Topanga Creek Was now this huge raging torrent I mean, you could see cars being swept Along this stream to the ocean The flood had ripped away The bottom of my friend's house Leaving the living room And the second story above it Teetering over a 40-foot cliff With no foundation And the relentless raging water below From all of our perspectives It was not a question of if But when would the rest of the house fall into the river And and you have to understand This was so dramatic This house hanging over this raging torrent They actually had a photograph in Time magazine of the house Dangling over the abyss before it fell The only thing left of the living room Were some slats of hardwood flooring Extending out into space Connecting to an intact but crumbling portion of the opposite wall, about 20 feet away, and teetering against that distant wall was their stereo. And on that stereo was Fleetwood Mac's new album, Rumors. Whenever I had visited them in happier times, which was like a week ago, that album was playing nonstop as they passed around a joint and talked about college or dogs or sunsets. And now there was an unintended irony in my friends humming Don't stop thinking about tomorrow in the middle of all this wreckage. That evening they came up to me with a long, thick rope. And they said, Stephen, glad you could come out. We wanna know if you can go get our record player. I looked out over the planks of wood. The raging flood could clearly be seen and heard through all of the broken and missing floorboards. They said, don't worry, we're going to tie this rope around you in case the floor collapses. I looked unconvinced. Joe, who was always smiling, came up to me and said, hey, Stephen, hey, you know, I was in the Merchant Marine, and I can tie a good knot around you, Uh, and there's a very big, strong tree over there. We'll just tie the rope to it. You will be very secure. So this was plan A. I asked, why pick the biggest, heaviest guy for this job? Why not pick a small woman? And a small woman answered me, because I may not be strong enough to carry the stereo back. And I learned at that instant that feminism worked better on the college campus. But she had a point. And after we shared an unusually large reefer, I agreed to get the stereo. Joe tied a knot the size of a cantaloupe around my waist. And I headed out across the boards. And here's where I had a teaching moment. Any endeavor as ill-conceived as this is likely to have some unintended consequences. As I walked out on the pieces of unsupported floor, they started to bend down with my weight. So with each little step I took, the floor creaked and groaned. And bowed down another few inches And I realized at this rate Even if the boards didn't break And drop me into the flood I would still never be able to get back with the stereo Because at this point The planks would be bent down at an 80 degree angle So I stopped I made a decision I came back Joe undid the rope And he went out himself He rescued the album and the turntable The speakers didn't make it I walked back to my car Feeling like a coward I was embarrassed I had chickened out I started to drive home And I felt this burning pain Not in my cheeks From shame But somewhere in my middle Just below my belly button And it took my breath away I figured it was probably a bruise Caused by the knotted rope And I got home And I took a shower And oh Hit me again It was a deep Prolonged burn I'd never felt anything quite like it And I went to bed Didn't think anything about it Ooh Until the next morning When it hit me again I knew something was wrong But what? Internal hemorrhage was my first thought The location made me think Maybe appendicitis or colon cancer And here's a brief digression Health is a lot like horseback riding I ride horses now People have asked me if I'm a good rider, and my answer for me and a lot of other people who ride, I'm good if the horse is going in the same place I'm going. If the horse wants to go in a different place, I'm not so good, and that's the same thing with health. I think we're all convinced that we have good health until we don't, and then we realize we were clueless all along, and we were taking far too much credit for our being healthy people. End of sidebar. I needed to go to a doctor, but I didn't know any doctors to go to. My dad was our family doctor. Medical care was something I never even thought about my entire life, and it never crossed my mind I would ever get sick in Los Angeles. How does someone find a doctor? Who's good? Who's bad? What part of town did he work in? How would I pay for it? It was overwhelming. I tried to use the yellow pages, but a lot of the doctor ads were written in Korean. I came up with my own system. I got in my car and drove in ever-widening concentric circles using my apartment as a midpoint. I figured I would stop at the first doctor's office I saw, and that at least would be the closest. The office I found turned out to be an urgent care facility in the heart of Hollywood, not far from the French market. The doctor in charge that day was a man named Dr. Glitter. For real. I waited for about an hour in a room filled with all the same cowboys and longshoremen I had had breakfast with. When I got back into the examining room, I told Dr. Glitter everything. I'd never been to a doctor other than my father, so I had no idea what was important and what was not important information. I told him about the floor and the stereo and rescuing the Fleetwood Mac album from the turntable, told him about the big rope around my waist, the size of the knot, the length of the rope, the distance from the tree I was tied to. And to his credit, Dr. Glitter listened patiently and was professional in every way, except he kind of glazed over at my description of the increasing angle of the bending floorboards. Then I told him about the burning pain in my middle and the location below my belly button, and he raised an eyebrow. And with just a little touch of too much an old coward for my taste, he said, Okay, drop your drawers. He felt around my groin. I was getting uncomfortable. Then he said, Get up on the table on your knees and elbows. I had never had a prostate exam in my life. No one prepared me. No one told me I would have to go through something like this as routine maintenance. So naturally, I was suspicious at this point that I had stumbled into some sort of gay satanic cult. The only way I could describe the prostate exam was it felt like someone was ripping out my insides with a red-hot crowbar, something like that. Dr. Glitter felt around, and then he mumbled, Ooh, I think we have a boggy prostate here I had no idea what he was talking about He told me to get dressed And then he hit me with the hard facts I had a prostate infection with epididymitis I asked what that was He said inflammation of the balls I was horrified I had no idea such a thing could happen. And then I had a memory. I was in sixth grade. I was wasting my time looking through an encyclopedia and study hall. And I saw this horrible picture of a group of African natives with huge, gigantic balls. And they were holding this big snake over their head. And their balls were almost touching the ground. And I thought, oh, my God, was that my future? Well, kiss my acting career goodbye. <laughs> How could I ever buy pants again? Dr. Glitter told me I would need antibiotics He asked me if I had a strong jockey strap at home I said I didn't know He said I want you to go out and buy the strongest one you could find This confused me because I never knew jockey straps came in strengths The good doctor told me that exertion and vibration made epididymitis work So I should stay in bed, wrap my testes in ice, and prop them up on a pillow if I had anywhere to go, put on the strong jockey strap and take the medicine. Come back and see him in a couple weeks. Well, I started shuffling out of the office, afraid to jounce too vigorously. And as I slowly made my way through the crowded waiting room, Dr. Glitter stuck his head out again and cheerfully called to me, Remember, Mr. Tubalowski, wrap those testes in ice and prop them up on a pillow. Every conversation in the waiting room stopped Every magazine lowered about two inches Every eye was on me And I imagined every cowboy in that room was looking at me Thinking of baggies of ice, satin pillows And muttering, there but for the grace of God go I When I got home, my girlfriend asked me what was wrong And I started to tell her And that's when I learned all relationships have limits And ours was discussion about scrotal swelling My friends out in Topanga asked me what was wrong And I had difficulty explaining The extra tight jockey strap was constricting my speech I was becoming aware that some maladies have no curb appeal Curb appeal for diseases only matters when you're healthy For example, alcoholism has more curb appeal than overeating We all imagine living with an alcoholic would be troublesome and turbulent But in kind of a sexy way Unless you live with one And then you know it becomes a matter of washing vomit off of things And questioning yourself as to how much tolerance you have To your partner sleeping with your friends A broken bone always seems to have a lot of curb appeal Visually, you just look a little silly with your cast You're only temporarily impaired And you usually have a good story It's kind of in the same category as rehab Prostate infection, swollen balls, zero I also learned the difference now between acute and chronic. The antibiotics patched me up pretty quickly, but Dr. Glitter told me I was likely to have problems off and on for the rest of my life. Yeah, apparently the testicle is a miraculous thing. There's something like two linear miles of tubing in each ball, teeny tiny tubing. And the immature sperm starts at one end and travels all the way to the other end. And on that long journey, it matures. It's kind of like high school for sperm before it gets the cap and gown and graduates. And because the tubing is so tiny, it's impossible for the antibiotics to get everywhere a germ could hide so reoccurrences are normal. For the next several months... Whenever I would get that certain feeling in my gut, I would take an ice cold can of Coke and stick it between my legs. This put the fire out, it felt great, but it had the same effect on my friends as if I I were a dog dragging my butt across the living room carpet. Again, no curb appeal. Time passed, we slid effortlessly from earthquake season to fire season. We were nearing flood season. The fire below kept intruding into my life. There was no cure I felt a little like the curse of Job had been placed upon me Some friends of mine from Texas had come into town So I took them out to the French market for breakfast And over omelets, I started to explain about the size of my scrotum What a boggy prostate was And while they listened to my horror story Out of the corner of my eye I started registering some changes in the final eatery Huh, a lot of empty tables That was odd See, the place was always packed There was always a waiting line of guys to come in And then I noticed a lot of the regulars were gone And some of the regulars who I could recognize Were looking like they lost a lot of weight Some young men wore bandages on their arms And one man at the counter looked like he had holes in his face I had no idea what was happening I hadn't put together all the clues I didn't know that It was a visitation from the angel of death. In a city that prided itself on its disasters, no one had mentioned this one. Something called grids was on the loose. You heard it whispered about. In a few months, the word AIDS would rear its head, never leave our door again. And if I were to give Armageddon a face, it would not be the fires, it would not be the earthquakes, but it would be the faces of one of these young men, just like me. They'd come out to Los Angeles to find something. And I guess they did. No one ever said Pandora's box had a warning label on it. There is a Zen parable that goes like this. A young married couple goes to a master for a blessing. And he looks at them and writes on a banner, Godfather dies, father dies, son dies. The couple is horrified. They curse the master. They say, how could you write such a terrible thing and call it a blessing? The master looked at them calmly and answered, this was a blessing. This was the formula for a happy life. Grandfather dies, father dies, son dies. If the order is any different, you will have the greatest of sorrow. Los Angeles had become an unintended consequence. It became a land of dying sons. My malady, besides having no curb appeal, now had become trivial to boot, but I was forced out of my role of being the central victim in my own life. My sins story goes like this: During this year of horror and fear, and you have to remember, at this point in time, nobody really knew the extent of what was going on. I went to a barber shop, and there were three chairs. Two of the barbers were old Italian men who'd been cutting their hair their entire life. The third chair opened up, and the barber. Was a young, painfully thin gay man Probably in his late 20s I sat in his chair with some hesitation And he smiled at me and told me not to worry I wouldn't catch anything He started cutting my hair He told me he had come out from Indiana He wanted to be in show business all of his life But it hadn't worked out But fortunately he had been to beauty school And he could still work as a barber Then he had gotten sick His condition was fatal His mother wanted him to come back home But he was going to stay in Los Angeles with his friends And work as long as he could And for his mother He decided to do something he had never done He was going to write the story of his life And give it to her as a parting gift He told me he had one practical problem He knew how the story begins And he knew how it would end But he had no middle chapters The face of that young man haunted me for years And like many things that have come into my life unexpectedly They've often been unappreciated It took me years to realize that that boy from Indiana was a blessing He taught me that there is always hope for a life well lived You just have to decide to tell your story The middle chapters start on any afternoon When you decide not to give up For me, they may have started that day I'm often asked by acting students, how did you start your career? And without getting too cute about it, I'm always struck with the same question. How do you define the starting line? Was it majoring in theater in college? Was it acting in plays in high school or junior high? Was it playing with sticks in the backyard? The answer is yes. All of them. But I think the real question they were asking was a professional one. How do you start your career acting? How did you get an agent? How do you get auditions? How do you get a job? The answer is both depressing and liberating There is no way to get started Like scientists who say that according to the principles of physics It's impossible for a bumblebee to fly They can't do it Yet they do And people do get agents and start living their life as a professional actor Making their dreams come true I thought of a few examples of some of my first pursuits in Hollywood And I thought they could be instructive as to what you could expect to find on your way up the slopes of Mount Doom I knew that if I expected to get any real auditions, I would have to get a real agent Hollywood is filled with many gatekeepers, but very few gates There are legions of job categories out here whose only purpose is to send you packing. There's agents, assistant agents, receptionists. They can be the worst. Casting directors, assistant casting directors, retired casting directors, acting teachers. They all seem like they were created to tell you you can't do it. When I arrived in town, I was so desperate to make inroads into the impenetrable that I tagged along with a couple friends of mine who were unemployed actors to hang out with a friend of theirs who was also an unemployed actor. And this friend's cachet was that he had just been accepted into an acting class that was supposed to be really good. Every Thursday at 11 p.m. after that class, as a group, we would go over to the apartment of the grand dame of the acting class, Gaiva. Gaiva was probably 70. She had dyed red hair and false eyelashes and had been a longtime member of this acting class. And her claim to fame was that several decades earlier, she had been an unemployed actress in New York. And that New York thing was a big selling point. This was my way of networking We would sit up for hours and drink red wine and listen to Gaiva talk about the business. She would give us tips as to how to succeed, how to get ahead. Occasionally, someone would gain her favor and she would offer to put in a good word for him or her to get them on the waiting list to get into the acting class. Then at about 1 a.m. sharp, she would start to cry and talk about her husband, Lou, who had just died. They had been married for years and years and they were inseparable. At first, it broke my heart, and then I noticed after sharing her tales of love for Lou for about an hour, the conversation would take a curious turn and she would focus on what a self centered bastard he was. This part of the evening went on till about 3 a.m. or until the bag of Fritos was gone and I had to excuse myself. Every week was the same thing acting advice until 1. Then a flood of tears and a deification of Lou Followed by a TMZ-like medieval dismantling of the man One week, Gaiva turned her attentions on me She used me as an example for the group's benefit of a lost cause She said she could never recommend me for the acting group Because it would be a waste of time She pointed out that I could never succeed Because I was not a man's man My voice needed to be deeper My physique more powerful My demeanor more dangerous As I recall I was feeling pretty dangerous right about then Not only was I insulted But I realized my weeks of networking A.K.A. brown nosing To gain the favor of Guyva To get into a class taught and composed by unemployed actors Was a bust As I recall, I was very defensive I asked her how she thought she could judge me I told her that I was comedian and I didn't need to be a man's man and that she had never seen me perform to make a judgment about my prospects And that it was inconsiderate of her to go on and on about Lou every week There was no way we could participate in the conversation and frankly it was boring me to death The room got very quiet Guyva mustered up a tear and told me I was a very insensitive man I told her she was right I was And that one of the attributes of being a real actor is that you have to know your audience And you also have to know when to get off the stage With that, I left I always felt pretty bad about being mean to Gaiva It's always better to take the high road My only consolation was that in the middle of all of this, I saw the look in her eye And I didn't really hurt her feelings But I saw that she was actually thrilled At having another role to play In which she was the star And she held the audience captive I began my pursuit of an agent Now there was a rumor That an associate of the big agency In my hometown in Dallas Was headed out to LA To open up a West Coast office It was also hinted at That all of the Dallas talent in LA Were in Wow I couldn't believe my good fortune Could it be that this vital And seemingly impossible step Was already a fait accompli No, it could not Kelly Green arrived in Los Angeles And set up meetings with all of her Dallas people The meetings had to be set up Around her work schedule Where during the week She was going to be selling rain gear On commission at the May Company A local department store I didn't know which was more dispiriting That I would have an agent whose primary job was selling umbrellas Or that I would have an agent who thought it was going to be a good idea to sell umbrellas in a desert Either way, I felt like this was not jumping on board the Silver Screen Express And against my friend's advice, I turned Kelly down, kept on looking I bought one of those actors' newspapers that had a list of agents And I went down the list until a name jumped out at me Carol Farrell Oh, I liked it. I liked the way it sounded because it rhymed. It sounded show busy. So I called up for an appointment, and lo and behold, the secretary said Miss Farrell would see me. I went in with a photo taken in Dallas of me wearing a black turtleneck against a black background. I looked like a severed head in a medical textbook. I typed out my pathetic resume, which included... Two college productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream, two productions of Importance of Being Earnest, some anti-Vietnam one-acts, and a couple student films that were never seen by anyone. As I sat in her waiting room, I was about to pass out from stress. There was a lot riding on this meeting. And she had a meeting before me seeing a soap opera actor who was also seeking representation. And the walls were so thin, I could hear everything that was going on in her office. It was brutal. She was abasing him for not having any real professional experience. He protested that he was a regular actor on a soap opera for the last two years. She told him flat out, that wasn't acting. My puny resume was shrinking in my hand He left the room flustered and battered Miss Farrell called me into the room And she was not what I expected She had a bouffant hairdo And she was wearing a one-piece knitted jumpsuit I sat down and she looked over at me She reached for my resume and photo Without changing her expression She muttered, you'll need new pictures She looked over my resume, put it down. I started to tell her that I'd also done a season of summer stock in New York. She interrupted me with, doesn't matter. She continued to look at me. What does matter is your name. I could never sell anyone with a name like yours. Stephen Tobolowski. never. You'll need to change it. I thought about my father and my grandfather and the generations of my family in Russia and Poland, lost in written history by wars and persecution. And then I said, what name could you sell me as? She thought about it for a long beat and answered, Steve Adams. I could sell you if you changed your name to Steve Adams. And I said, great. Why don't you tell people you represent an actor named Steve Adams? Then if they hire me, we'll change it. I called home that night and told mom and dad that I had met an agent who wanted me to change my name There was a little bit of hesitation on the other end of the line And then I was surprised that their basic attitude was, hey, whatever it takes I had some resumes made up with Steve Adams And I even sent some out to my friends I hear they're still holding them as hostage for future blackmail I dropped them by Carol, who was on the phone She looked she nodded her approval, I left About two days later, phone call Carol said she needed to see me right away She had a job for me I rushed over to her office She asked me if I played basketball I said yes I had even played on a team I was on the Carpenter Crusaders when I was 11 I played forward And I had a scoring average of four points per season As I recall, I got hurt a lot And when you're an actor, everything is on the resume Your life is your palette She asked me how tall I was I said, six foot three She looked at me with a straight face and said, could I be six foot six? I told her, yes, in three inch heels That's really when it came home to roost that perhaps Carol Farrell was not living in the same universe as I was I was never seen for that job I was too short I was learning that Hollywood was a place where traditional laws of physics didn't necessarily apply. One of the apartments I looked at during this period of time had an odd feeling to it, and the landlord told me it was built to Western proportions. I had no idea what that was. He told me in the old days of the Western two-reelers, they used to build all of their sets to a ratio of seven-eighths to the actual size to make the stars look bigger. In other words, it was the opposite of telescopes In astronomy, the great telescopes are not rated by how big they make something look But by how much illumination they allow That ain't Hollywood I was Steve Adams for another two weeks And then my search for an agent continued I got a return call from an agent I had submitted my picture and resume to He asked me to come by his office at noon I did He wasn't there The door was locked. I went home. I called later and asked him if I got the time wrong. He called me back and said no. He was just at lunch and forgot. He suggested I come back at the end of the week, which I did. He wasn't there. The door was locked. I went home. I called him and asked if he forgot again. He returned the call a few days later and said no, something unexpected had come up. He asked me to come back that afternoon. I asked if he was really going to be there that time because if he wasn't, I was going to have to kill him, skin him, and stick his head on a pike. He laughed and said he would be there. I went back that afternoon, and lo and behold, the office door was open. He told me he couldn't take me as a client unless I auditioned for him. And I said that was fine. I had a modern monologue and a Shakespeare. I I could do it right there for him right now. And he said no, no. He thought of himself as something of a writer And he wanted me to do some of his material He handed it to me It was some speech like you'd find in a western About the hot sun and being in jail And eating bugs for breakfast and getting lynched I don't know It was like something Walter Brennan would have delivered in Judge Roy Bean I told him I would learn it and come back And he said no He wanted me to come to his house Friday night and perform it Oh dear, I was naive, but I had seen the graduate. I didn't know what to do. If I don't show up and he's legit, I miss out on getting an agent. If I do show up and he's not legit, I take a chance of being drugged, raped, and murdered. I went for the agent. I had no idea what was in store for me. He told me to show up at 8 PM. He lived in the Hollywood Hills. I made my way through all the nooks and crannies and byways around the Hollywood Bowl. I parked, got out of the car, adjusted my tie and my sport coat, walked up to a huge wooden door and knocked. A maid opened the door and showed me inside, and whoa, there was a party going on. There was about 40 people all smartly dressed Eating finger food and drinking cocktails And I see the agent standing on the far side of the room In a creamy silk shirt Talking and laughing with one of his compatriots And he saw me and he put his food down And shouted to the room Yo, everyone Hey, everyone Quiet down We got a special treat tonight We're going to have a little extra entertainment This young actor came to my office a couple weeks ago Wanting me to be his agent And tonight he's going to audition for us So if everyone will please take a seat Let's watch uh, He didn't have my name memorized yet Let's watch uh, Steve Stephen, And I didn't know if I should say Adams Screw it And I answered Tobolowski. Stephen Tobolowski, You're on everybody was a little shocked and I could see one woman looking at first like this was gonna be a whole lot of fun and then she looked like this was kind of weird and then she looked like she would rather be anywhere else on earth. I waited for everyone to get absolutely quiet. If nothing else, we would share this moment. If people kept eating shrimp, I stared at them. I was thinking that all I had left in this exchange was my dignity And if this guy wanted me to do a speech about bugs in the food at his party, that's what I would do I delivered the speech directly to one woman on the front row I never broke eye contact I finished, I left the house, I drove home And I never called the agent again I ended up running into the guy over the next 20 years, off and on I was always polite I took the high road but I never tried to engage them in conversation The lessons of Hollywood Are never what you think And that's because Hollywood has never been a part of civilization By definition It's been an antidote to civilization It's been a refuge And an escape It manufactures ways to kill time Consequently it's a war zone And in a war Sometimes discretion is the better part of valor
0: That was The Middle Chapters, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, whatever became of this mystery agent that uh, <laughs> that you never went back to? You know, I, I, I should clear up, uh,
1: I realize there's an impression about him that he was either an axe murderer or a flake or a sexual deviant or something like this. Actually not, he was actually a very legitimate agent who handled a lot of big actors in town. So, uh, in a way, maybe I did miss out on taking the high road and never calling it back.
0: Indeed. Well, if you had done that, you might not have ever become Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Hey, so. you know that's
1: you know the, Well, I guess maybe that's another story for a different middle chapter of of how I did get my agent, which oh, yeah. was also kind of by happenstance. But I always had a mantra when I when I came to. Uh, Los Angeles, or being a professional actor, is get a job, get an agent, get a good job, get a good agent. And and that, I think, is true for all the people starting out. You have to put it out there first for people to see you and to want to take you into their agency. And then, as you get experience, you, you can move on up the food chain.
0: Well, I'm sure this is good advice for uh, lots of our <laughs> listeners out there. Well, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who who are interested in I, getting... No, it I, I
1: get stuff. emails from people all the time who are actors starting out asking me a little acting advice.
0: Well, speaking of emails, Stephen, uh, where can people reach you if they want to send an email to the great Stephen Tobolowsky?
1: I think the best place to reach me is at stephentobolowsky at gmail.com, and that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. T is in Tom, O oh, B is in boy, O oh, L O W S K Y, the Russian spelling. Y, not I.
0: And you are also on Twitter now, aren't you, sir? Hey, I'm I'm a
1: Twitter guy now, and we're trying to figure out on Twitter how to get my cat to where my my mentally retarded cat Finn to allow me to pet him. So it's going to be an ongoing Twitter project. Uh, that, and of course, answering questions about the uh, podcast.
0: Indeed. So if that sounds riveting to you, then you should follow Stephen on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash right?
1: That is correct.
0: Very cool. Uh, you're rapidly accumulating a following, as well you should. Um, you can also <laughs> uh, follow me at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. And uh, you can also uh, email me at slash filmcast at gmail.com, which is... Uh, uh, the email address of the normal show I host, in addition to The Tobolowski Files, is slashfilmcast at slashfilmcast.com. So that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowski Files. I want to remind people of uh, two things. Number one, uh, if you want to subscribe to the show, head on over to Tobolowskifiles.com. You'll find every single episode that's ever been done there. And uh, please use the new podcast feed links to subscribe in iTunes and in RSS, uh, whatever reader you'd like. And finally, uh, I just want to say a a big shout-out to a special movie that Stephen Tobolowsky's in, which is very much the inspiration for this podcast. Uh, Stephen, what is this movie I'm referring to?
1: Oh, that's sweet of you to mention. It's uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party. It's a a storytelling movie, and it's been all over the world uh, where I do totally different stories that I'm doing on the podcast, I should mention, but uh, <clears throat> it's it's kind of a delightful film for those who haven't seen it. And, and you could find it, I think there are a couple places to find it now. You could uh, find it at STBP, Stephen Tabalowski Birthday Party, stbpmovie.com. You could find it at amazon.com, and we're rentable now at Netflix, which is great.
0: And it's a really enjoyable movie. And if you like The Tobolowsky Files, I'm willing to bet money that you're going to enjoy Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. So anyway, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. Tune in next week. And thanks for listening, guys. Have a good week. Bye-bye.